So uh, tonight, I'd like to talk about, the title of the talk this evening is um, The Essential Elements of a Formless Practice. <clears throat> Shall we start over? <laughs> Getting off to the right start here. Um, actually, I'm, the teachers and I were uh, speaking last night, and uh, Jack said, oh, you're giving the talk on the last day, huh? And I said, yes. And he said, well, there are two times when you have a hard time getting the attention of the yogi. One is the first day, and the second is the last day. Uh, and yet I think this particular topic is very important. And so I, I wish for you uh, to meet me in that listening, if you would. It really, um, this talk really uh, has taken me, um, my whole practice history to uh, to come to. And it's because um, I struggled so desperately when I was new to the practice and how to maintain some kind of continuity, how to develop a sense of practice outside of retreat. And it's an age-old question that I know we have all struggled with, those of you who are uh, experienced in the meditation. And there never seemed to be the right answer for me. People would talk about the tricks of maintaining the practice after you leave, sitting every day, doing this, doing that. But I would try, and within a relatively short period of time, somehow it seemed to dissipate. Somehow it seemed to leave me. Somehow I felt as if I was no different than I had been prior to the retreat, at least in my ability to carry the form forward. And so I really tried to synthesize what is essential in being able to do it. And I, um, I originally called this talk the three-legged stool because to, for me, there are three legs that are absolutely important or essential for Dharma practice to continue. And with any one of those legs missing, the stool, of course, tumbles over. So I'd like to um, talk about that tonight. And in doing so, um, just to preface it a little bit, I'm doing a series of four talks on this subject in Seattle. So it's kind of compressed. Uh, but I think we can get the central themes of each of those legs as we go through this tonight. Now, one of the, one of the qualities that is very, very endearing to me, and I hear the other teachers talking about it too, is uh, towards the last 
towards the end of the retreat, from the middle towards the end, uh, you all come into the interviews uh, enormously open and exposed and vulnerable. Sometimes seeing patterns in yourself that have, you've lived with your entire lives and just catching a glimpse of a potential, of another way to be, of another form of aliveness that just catches a fresh, it's like a fresh, a fresh breath of air that passes your cheeks. It's so beautiful to see. There is so much hope in that, that I don't want to see that hope dissipated in you. I, my wish is for you to really engender and live with that sense of newness and possibility. So what are those essential elements that would allow us to maintain that perspective? You see, the retreat environment, what we've been doing here for 10 days, is, of course, sitting mindfully, walking mindfully, and doing our daily chores mindfully. But more important, more fundamental than the forms or expressions of this 10 days together, has been a new view on what life is. Has been a new perception on life. Because all of you came here, came to the meditation retreat with your old perception. That life is about quantity, quantifying it. Accumulation. And you came here to get something. Came here to take something. You came here to gather something so that you could carry it out or so that you could at least experience a different form of your life here in the center. And slowly what happened over time through your dedication to the meditation is that that sense of quantity changed to quality of contact. So your view of life shifted through those 10 days from wanting to take things in to wanting to have quality of contact to whatever did arise. That is a shift of view. That is a different way to look at life entirely. And I propose that it's essential if we are going to be meditative, if we are going to have a Dharma practice outside of this. Now, working in hospice care, that view starts to unfold as someone begins to die. No longer can they long for a life of longevity. That's not going to happen anymore. Those days are numbered. And yet, the definition of hope, they still need to embrace life in some way that is hopeful to them, as you do through those interviews. So the nature of life changes from a life of, in which I will live for so many years more to a life of quality of contact. 
to a life in which the richness and meaning is in the very contact with life itself. The very moment of contact itself. And we say in hospice care that the nature of hope changes from quantity to quality, to quality of time. From a hope of longevity to a hope of quality of contact, of relationship. And as I like to do in talking about this kind of thing is to use hospice stories. There was a man and uh, a couple. Uh, the wife was uh, dying after 65 years of marriage. And the wife commented to me one day on the state of their marriage for those 65 years. She said, for almost all of those 65 years, her husband never really showed the kind of appreciation that she knew he felt for her. He never expressed it in manner and he never communicated it in speech. And then she became terminally ill. And as she was going through the last weeks to months of life, she said that he could not stop telling her how much he appreciated her. And in fact, it was hard for me to even speak to her alone because he was so attentive in terms of his caring, in terms of his willingness in terms of his willingness to really express the affection he always felt. Don't we delay that? I don't understand this, but... So this view of life, that life has quality and richness outside of quantity, is the foundation on which all of our Dharma practice grows. It is the basis, it is the earth that we stand on in Dharma practice. Nothing happens because all we do when we come into retreat, if we keep quantifying everything, is becoming something. We want to get this, we want to get that. We want to be better, we want to be self-improved. We want to be holy, we want to be good. We want this, we want that. And so nothing ever arrives within a Dharma persona, 
that has that set accept more of the same life we've always been living. Nothing ever comes in because we keep meeting every situation with the same view of life that we've held before. Therefore, fundamental to the way we move out into life has to be with a new view. And that's what we've been doing here. We have been practicing a new view. That is as important as anything we've done for these 10 days, practicing that view. The practice takes us to that view, but it isn't the only form in which that view arrives, or it would be senseless. It would be a very constricted practice if I could only achieve that view through my meditation, formal meditation practice. I have to have access to that view otherwise, and we do. We do if, and this is a big if, if we apply ourselves to that. One very helpful form of application of that view, for me, has been death. Death is the fulcrum, is the point on which the teeter-totter between those two views sit. Because if we have the view of having, accumulating, and quantifying, death shows us irreversibly that that view is wrong. Because everything that we have, that we own, that we accumulate, that we are, ends in death, is diminished, is dispersed with time. And therefore, if we live with the reflection of death, if we live with that image of death over our left shoulder, then the having view is always dispersed into the being, into the quality, into the contact. You don't try to hold on to somebody because that person is going to die. But the moment you meet is so precious each and every moment is so precious for its own sake, not for where it's going to take us or not from what we're going to become from it. And therefore, we let that moment die and we meet the next moment until we die. And so that view begins to unfold a meditation practice in and of itself. Fundamental, essential to walking out of here. To show you how the view itself can sustain a quality of meditative life without any prior practice whatsoever. There's a social worker that works at the hospice that I've just been noticing because of the quality of her behavior. She's been a social worker in hospice care about six years, deeply, deeply involved in the work. And I said to her one day, just to get a sense of what it is, where that quality of life comes from for her because she radiates it so spectacularly, I asked her, you know, what to what, for you, is all this about? 
in the face of what you're doing. And she said, it's simple. There's no other time but now. You see what that reflection of death does for us? You see how it turns itself into a new view, a new perspective, a new understanding, a new approach to living? But that's only one leg of the stool. We still have two other legs, and then we have to sit on the stool. So now that we have that view, now that we're really willing to use life or to see life, not in terms of an accumulation, and that's very subtle. For instance, the way we use time. I want to save time. I'm wasting time. How much time do I have left to live? All those are quantified quantifications of time. So that's the old view coming back. You see? It's very subtle how that works. So there's an awful lot of work that we have to do to really get in there and see the nuances of this new view. But the second leg of the stool, now that we have that view, now that we're looking out on life, what's the attitude? What is my orientation? within life, with that view. So the question is, what orientation or attitude to life doesn't hold life, doesn't contain life, doesn't stop or rest on life? Because to do that is the old view, not the new one. It has to flow like water through a sieve. It has to move like water through a pipe. It can't be arrested. It can't be retained. It can't be possessed. There can be no retention. Now, the attitude has to be very special, has to be very different. And the only attitude that I've come up with in all the years of my practice is one in which we are learning. So our approach to life, our perspective to life, once we have this view, is let me learn from it. Let me learn from what life is. Let me be open. No retention when I'm open. I'm not holding back. I'm not trying to accumulate knowledge in my orientation, in my attitude. That would be the old view. I'm just letting life pass through me ongoingly, learning as I go, all along the way all along the way. Well, what about mistakes? Well, mistakes are just opportunities to learn. There are no mistakes. We can be afraid of making, we don't have to be afraid of making mistakes. I find so many students afraid of making mistakes in their practice, afraid of trying something new. That fear keeps you out of alignment with the third leg of the stool that I'll talk about in just a minute. But it limits your, your totality, your total response to Dharma. 
because you always sit back and judge what you're doing in relationship to the mistake you might be making. And so that there's a kind of a holding back. And Dharma requires 100%. It requires everything from us. From us. It's not a partial response. So learning, learning, learning. Let me give you a, an example of learning. It's my favorite example in hospice care. 33-year-old woman, many of you have heard this, but bear with me. 33-year-old woman dying uh, with two teenage <coughs> children. She was dying at home, and she wanted to be taken to our inpatient unit uh, for one reason or another. Usually people don't request that, but she was so adamant that she didn't want to die in her home that we brought her into our inpatient unit. When she, soon as she got in the inpatient unit, she started to actively die. We were all gathered around her bed because she had just gotten there trying to make her comfortable in her new home. And she started to actively die. Now, usually when somebody actively dies, they are either in a coma and unable to t talk and speak and, uh, about what they're going through, or they're too weak to do so. She was neither. She was telling us what it was like to die. We were gathered around her bed, and she was describing death to us. Now, when you have hospice people who have come to this subject with such passion, and somebody's actually telling you, it is as if a secret of the universe is being imparted. So she says, my God, I can't feel anything on my body anymore, meaning that she had no bodily sensation. And then she said, I can't see anymore. And then she said, I can't hear anymore. And then she said, my God, I'm no longer in my body. And then she tried to say something and died. Now, the purpose of that story is not so much the way we die, but the level of interest that each of us have as we listen to that story. Because that's the learning. That's the attitude of learning that's taking place. That's your receptivity. That's the beauty of being on the edge of the mystery that Eugene talked about. And it's that attitude, that wonder, that way that we can meet life with, with, with learning. So learning doesn't press us into a known person. It doesn't force us into our old and past behaviors. It's always an expression of something new and alive in the moment. And so that the quality of the contact that I make with someone isn't from the past, but from the active, ongoing appreciation of the present. Because learning is always new. It's always fresh. As a matter of fact, I often give these simple instructions for people to do when I teach back in Seattle. I tell people, and please try this, I tell people to go stand in front of a mirror 
for five minutes each morning and to look and to see what the mirror reflects and then look to see what you bring to that reflection. Allow what you bring to that reflection to die and you be the reflection. So you stand in front of the mirror, not with vanity, but with investigation. And you see the reflection in that mirror, and you see what you bring to that reflection. Oh, you're too this, you're too that. How could you be that way? How could anybody like you? Blah, 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 all of that. And you let it die, because it has no bearing on the reflection. The reflection is what life sees, not what you bring to it. That is learning. That's the wonder. The reason you squirmed for much of this 10 days together is because you lost that view and you became consolidated in the view of what you brought to the reflection and judged it. And so it takes practice. It takes extraordinary practice. The model of learning. But we're only two-thirds of the way finished. We still have the other leg. If I could just find it. <laughs> this other leg was very beautifully spoken about by Eugene. May I say that when I see a new teacher coming along, that has the passion that Eugene expressed, my heart warms, because I know that Dharma is being cared for. Because this third leg is the passion that we have for life. I keep a little saying on my desk at home, and it goes like this. Do not ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and then go out and do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. You see, somewhere along the line, many of us, perhaps most of us, have lost our aliveness. We have lost how we interface with the world. We have lost our interest. We have lost our passion. We have lost what brought us to whatever profession we are in at the moment. Somewhere it's gone. Mostly it's gone in terms of sacrificing that for some sort of security, some sort of financial security or prestige or status or something. We bailed out of our aliveness. We bailed out of the passion. We bailed out of the thing which has brought us energy and enthusiasm and interest to life. 
The third leg of the stool is essential. It's not essential that you maintain the continuity of mindfulness every single moment of the day. That falls away very quickly for most people. Some people, that's their passion. But it wasn't for me because it didn't have, it wasn't rich enough in terms of its, in ter the form itself wasn't rich enough for me. I needed more. When I was a, a um, forest monk, uh, I uh, was very uh, enamored by the practice and did it for years and years. And then somewhere along the way, the form itself became dry for me. And then around that time, I read uh, Stephen Levine's book, Who Dies? And I put, read it and I put it down. I said, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. My passion was so clear that I wanted to work with the dying. And I came straight back to the United States and hooked up with a hospice. That's how clear it was. Because I could, I could just feel the enthusiasm. I could feel the richness of that subject. Now I use my hospice work as a metaphor for aliveness, not for everybody to become hospice workers. You know your own aliveness. You know where you resonate with the world. You know where your passions exist. Trace back why it is that you got involved in whatever you're involved in now. If you're a healthcare worker, what was it originally that got you involved in healthcare? If you're a lawyer in law, a doctor in medicine, an astronomer with the stars. Because therein we can rekindle that interest if we fall back into it, if we go back. Or, now, there is nothing outside of this interest. That is, it doesn't have to be service work. Not if you define service work so narrowly that you work with individuals. Because if you work with your aliveness, you will serve the world. You will feed the world through your aliveness. Automatically. We feed the world through our being fed, not through our sacrifice. And you see, we can uncover it. And then we don't stop there. We let it pull us, because that's our heart's way. First of all, when you're present in doing what you love to do, aren't you awake? Aren't you there, present, attentive? Is that not meditation? And you see, We can uncover it. And then we don't stop there. We let it pull us, because that's our heart's way. First of all, when you're present in doing what you love to do, aren't you awake? Aren't you there, present, attentive? Is that not meditation? This isn't some, I'm not talking about some other practice here. I'm talking about the practice we did every day this week. 
The passion is there. The interest is automatic. The attention follows the interest in my engage in the world. And so the forms of our practice fall away at some point. It doesn't mean that it's not important to sit. It is important to sit. But if our whole spiritual lives rest upon sitting, we will be bound to retreat for the rest of our lives. And for a very, very, very small percentage of people, that's appropriate. The rest of us have to hook into the world that involves and engages us in a way that allows us to be fed. And to know that in ourselves. So what we do is we, we hook on to something. Let us say that we love animals. That's where our love is. We start working with that. But we don't start, stop with just loving animals, loving dogs. You go from loving dogs to loving animals. Then you go from loving animals to loving all beings. But you work from the particular to the general. You see? You take that aliveness and move it out. Move it through and out. And it takes our understanding right along with it. Because when we are interested, we are profoundly connected. And you don't listen to other people judging that passion. I remember, you know, coming back and leaving the robes. And as I was leaving the robes, some of the older, experienced monks, who had been monks for years and years, essentially said to me that I was blowing it that I was walking away from my spiritual life. That I was giving in to my ignorance. I didn't pay them <laughs> any attention whatsoever. Out of there. <laughs> Because I knew that wasn't true. I knew it. And I disrobed in Sarnath, which is where the Buddha gave his first sermon in Benares. And I felt like I was giving my first sermon to, to life. I felt like this was a statement of a new life. And I haven't missed a step. I have never felt in 14 years of hospice care that I have compromised my spiritual growth one iota. We can come to life with that kind of engagement, but it requires that third leg of the stool you see, these three legs require your attention. 
every bit as much as this week required your attention. But they don't require your microscopic attention. They don't require the kinds of moment-to-moment close attention that you are giving to this week. That time, that is very precious. It's a very important time. It's time you see and time you come to terms with that kind of slowing down. But that's usually not available in the way we live. These three legs of the stool stand on any relationship to time. We can always focus in on the view and reassert that new view. We can always learn when we're in a hurry. And we can always know where our connection to life is. I had a friend who was a waitress putting herself through school. And she complained, 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 complained about waitressing. She did not like to waitress. And so I said to her, what is it that you want to do when you're out of school? And she said, serve people. So I said, (laughs) why don't you start now? And a light went off in her. A light went off. Of course. You see, sometimes the difference between engaging ourselves with our passion and doing what we're doing now is just a simple switch of perception. A simple click and we're back home. And we keep getting off on the other clicks and just realigning ourselves to that. Reconnecting, re-engaging, feeling what it's about. And if your love, as many people in this room, is for the love of the Dharma, then that is just as good, that's just as much of a hook as any passion, because all passions stem from that love of the Dharma. And then we can just start translating our lives in terms of Dharma. And actually that's one of the ways one of the foundations of mindfulness is talked about. Connecting with life through the Dharma, through the truth, and engaging ourselves in that truth, not philosophically, but engaging ourselves in that. Looking for the clues everywhere, under rocks, in streams, around corners, always, always. You see? You'll find the clues. 
like you walk across the street and a homeless person passes you and you find yourself sort of moving away and the homeless person wants to engage but see that's a clue that's as much of a clue as Professor Plum in the kitchen with the knife <laughs> there it is or somebody says hi how are you and you say something rough and coarse back and then you say well that person deserved it anyway see there's a clue every component of life is a clue so now I want to bring this teaching back within the tradition, because it's out there a little bit. The Buddha talked about right understanding, the way we understand the meaning and purpose of life. He talked about right attitude, how we address and look upon life. And he talked about right action. What is our manifestation into the world? It's all there. It's all here. Can we sit for a few minutes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.